pencil in the apocalypse. I gotta get up at five o'clock in the morning and sparkle, Neely, sparkle. I know what some of your big city no bra wearing hairy legged women livers might say. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Maximum Film. It's episode two hundred and sixty-three thousand years of longing. Here we go. It's your host, if you waddy waiting in the booth with me, all my friends. So let me introduce you to them. First up, we have the Christmas Zaddy himself, looking uh, quite toasty because it is a hot day in LA. Alonzo Duralde, what's good? Uh, Ify, my my what's good is Paxlovid. Ask your doctor if Paxlovid (laughs) is right for you. It was right for me. Uh, I began taking it within about 24 hours or so of testing positive for COVID. And I have to say, uh, it. I feel like I, I had a much easier run than I might have otherwise. Symptoms-wise, um, it was five days of, uh, of pills in the morning and at night. And I, I have to say, I skated through pretty easily. I'm still dealing with like fatigue and a little, little, little touch of brain fog, let's say. But as far as like kind of coughing or sneezing or bronchial stuff, barely, barely even registered. So uh, thank you, Modern Medicine. Yeah, no, I truly thank you. I mean, Alonzo's downplaying it, but I was there. He was uh, tied up in the chair, surrounded by COVID, and uh, and he looked up <laughs> at the COVID, and he said, uh, he was like, a lot of people been asking me if I'm Pax or not, and yeah, I'm thinking I'm Pax, Lovid. And then he uh, fought his Ew. way out of it. That was, that was a phenomenal plot. That was... <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, uh, the person booing me, uh, which is uh, very rare from the queen of the Midwest. You know, they, they're known for their Not niceness and, uh, and casseroles. Uh, Drea Clark, how you doing? What's good? It's called a hot dish, if you It's a hot dish. Um, I am good. My what's good is last week here in California, where I reside during my reign of the Midwest, um... We got, or I got anyway, many of us got a text one night that was like, uh, you're going to lose all your power, mofos, and please turn everything off. And I was like in a panic. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I have this one lamp and my single AC unit on. What else can I turn off? Should I unplug the fridge? Am I doing enough? And so it was like this small thing, and it was just this disheartening moment of, oh, God, we're inching closer to Mad Max every second. But the good part of it is the next day I saw a graph that we were creeping up all day of power usage and within five minutes and they were like planning on rolling blackouts throughout the state to compensate for this. But within five minutes of sending that text, my fellow Californians all made enough adjustments that they didn't have to do any blackouts. And that is good for me, because as you know, my baseline these days is thinking most people are garbage. So <laughs> it's real nice to be reminded that that is not true. That is just my unnatural cynicism kicking in. So it was a it was a lovely moment of oh solidarity. It, people. it was a yeah, it was a brief like Capra esque respite where I was like, okay, yes. so I'm not a sucker for doing this while all the Kardashians still are like you know gunning every AC unit they've got. Like clearly there was a collective push, yeah. and we did not dip into like Texas territory and lose the grid. So yeah. yay us everybody. We're all in this together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I think but, it had sort some, of, sort yeah. of. It was like a goop newsletter that went out and we were going through an electric cleanse. And uh, <laughs> I think that was the big push we need. So shout out to Gwyneth Paltrow uh, making that happen. Uh, <laughs> just just really pulling out all the stops. I, I, it's, it's a weird side note. That goop kitchen, it slaps. It actually is very good. I'm so- How dare you bring goop into my what's good? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I feel like the if, there was, if there was a place for goopiness, I think I'd, I'd, I'd settle. But I Oh, just because I'm the white lady here who who spends a little too much money on skincare. Oh, fine. Oh, just, uh, you know what? I got something for you, Uh, and hopefully it'll make up for it. But we got to introduce our amazing guest who's here. I'm super excited to have him chat with us. It's a writer and producer, television legends whose credits include things like Pushing Daisies, y'all know that one. Hannibal, yeah, y'all definitely know that one. American Gods, Star Trek Discovery, and coming to Shudder at the end of this month, Queer for Fear. Brian Fuller, what's good? Hello. Thank you. Uh, I saw E.T. in IMAX yesterday, and uh, 
wept through a lot of it. And <laughs> there's, I, I like that movie is so emotionally manipulative, but I feel like John Williams is doing much of the heavy lifting in it because 4K is not E.T.'s friend, but despite that, <laughs> John Williams uh, buoyed my emotions throughout the course of the entire movie, and I found myself, like, wet-faced uh, throughout a lot of it. Just be, I was so terrified and sad for poor little E.T. crying for his ship to wait. Wait! Wait! As he's, like, running <laughs> through the forest and screaming, and I just started crying, and I kind of cried throughout the whole thing. That's Ooh. how I watch E.T. and The Color Purple. I pretty much, after the first viewing now, I get 30 seconds in, and I'm like, okay, we're off to the races, and I'm just going to be <laughs> a mess for the next two hours, and that's how we're going to do it. The oh, tears yeah. come now, but when I remember E.T., I remember being terrified by that film because I was like Drew Barrymore's age when it came out, and wow. though when it gets to the, like, Peter Coyote section, like, all of the, like, medical stuff and them separating them and the... Oh, it's all like we're gonna put everything in like this plastic. I just it was, a, I consider it my first horror film. Like it was truly traumatizing. We had like in in the Queer for Fear documentary, uh, one of our interviewees, Brianna Venskis, who's a, a fantastic actor, talked about it as her first horror experience and also a queer horror experience because ET is cross dressing, gender fluid. And there is something about the, uh, you know, the stranger danger in in those movies that, uh, that are targeted toward children, but adults kind of like feel them on a different level that felt uh, much more immediate in, in this viewing. And also, if, if you're worried about Peter Coyote, you, per, you perhaps should check out Outrageous Fortune uh, just to curb <laughs> the, the, the feelings of terror that you might feel for him because uh, he's, he's a notoriously good lover that Bette Midler and Shelley oh, uh, Yeah, trust me. My Peter Coyote feelings along with puberty just turned to straight lust. So <laughs> most of the fear out the door. Yeah, yeah. But uh, speaking fear, of lust, fear. Iffy, what's good with you? Come on, the oh. only segue I've ever made. But, uh, yeah, yeah, and it's a banger one. Uh, you know, the god of lust himself here in the uh, audio flesh. Uh, what's good with me is, you know, uh, you know, I, I my skincare regimen has been shaken up, okay? Uh, my girlfriend has introduced a lot of these Korean skincare uh, products. I use that. There's a mochi toner. That uh, that's been that's been really fun, and uh, the hydrolonic acid that gets it nice and uh, Hi hyaluronic. Of course, no of course, you know exactly how to pronounce it correctly. The hyaluronic acid. Uh, sorry for your I think the last time I used it, I was like, uh, "Babe, where's your hydrochloric acid?" And she was like, <laughs> she was like "Phantom of the Opera." <laughs> But yeah, no, so it's been nice. And then there's like an under eye balm type thing. And I remember I was putting it on the other day and I was like, oh, Dre would be proud of me right now, getting uh, getting my face done. I right. really would. The next step I want for you is uh, Korean skincare is what got me into putting snail mucus on my face. Plump you right up. Look, it's going to be great. I'm going I'm to get it looking good. Looks so good that who knows? Maybe 3,000 years from now when somebody rubs on a lamp and I pop out big as hell, thick, feet, free feet pics hanging out the doorway. Yeah, I'm talking about 3,000 years of longing where you get to see Idris Elba's feet in 4K. Uh, <laughs> then we're going to be taking some hotline questions about island movies. But first... It's time for Itadick, short for Is This Important? Do I Care? A movie news segment where we go through the week's movie news and ask ourselves that question. So, Alonzo, there couldn't have been an Itadick built for you more. Let's kick it off. <laughs> so, uh, the criteria. Did you say Itadick or Itadick? <laughs> uh, depending Viewer's on the choice. subject. Uh, <laughs> yeah, really your call. <laughs> so, Criterion made a big announcement this week that caused a lot of uh, uh, astonishment. Uh, they are adding a 4K and Blu-ray special edition of Pixar's WALL-E to the collection, complete with special features and beautiful new cover art. The WALL-E disc will be released in November as part of a slate that also includes In the Mood for Love, The Power of the Dog, and Spike Lee's Malcolm X. Is this important? Do you care? It's so tricky because the world has changed so much since WALL-E came out. So the idea of having a, a film that speaks to 
humans ill-treating the world they live in or abandoning it. it just I can't even fathom it. <laughs> so far behind us. Yeah, we've so already fixed. So I guess it's fixed. good they've packaged it so I can remember <laughs> what it was like. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, what, what I found fascinating, because, of course, film Twitter has opinions. Oh, yeah. And people were flipping out about, oh, I can't believe they're doing a Disney movie. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. They did Armageddon. They did The Rock. And they did a whole bunch of Wes Anderson movies that were also Disney movies. Yes, this is the first Pixar movie. This is the first Disney animated film. But, like, why not? This was a movie that won Best Picture from the L.A. Film Critics that year, I remember. Like, this is a, this is a, a you know, if you're going to start with a Pixar for something like this, this would be the way to do it. I've also heard, oh, does this mean that, like, Disney is backing away from doing physical media releases? And I'm like, maybe. Because, you know, I think with, with all the HBO Max nonsense of, of late, it seems like everything is on the table. Every bad idea that any studio can do to disrespect, sell off, and otherwise cut off their own legacy and library uh, could happen. So I don't know. But in the meantime, I'm, I'm psyched about this one. Yeah, yeah. No, this this one seems fun. The, 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 I think the only thing that's surprising to me is not that Criterion did it, but that Disney isn't like, no, we need to do our masterpiece Disney collection that, uh, that you buy sh- strictly from our retailers. True. Uh, which, which is, which, you know, I'm like, okay, interesting. Let's, uh, let's never see. wants to leave a dime on the table. I know. Disney. So yeah. that's, that's the curious part to me is the dime on the table for the Disney streaming site, uh, which they're trying to corral people toward. So they don't buy hard media and they're become dependent on the streamer. And this is Ooh. true. Yeah, yeah. I could I could be, uh, be you know, again, also masters of the long game Disney. So the, they pr- I mean like too. every um distributor prefers that platform because it's a monthly fee rather than a single usage oh, yeah. purchase. The keep the the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. For sure. I'd say the other thing with Criterion doing this that I appreciate and we've discussed before is the recognition that animation isn't just a kids or a family medium. Mm, There's something about the like adult, oh, the the laurels essence of Criterion (laughs) and cementing like, oh, it counts as art as well. And there's so much beautiful animation that's done. Absolutely. You know, speaking of Ididik's uh, specially formulated for the specific host, this one, we're talking about Zach Efron saying his workout regimen for Baywatch is unrealistic and left him depressed. It's not surprising that diet and workouts would come up on a cover story for men's health, but Efron was surprisingly candid about how unhealthy he felt after getting ripped for uh, 2017's Baywatch. He said he wasn't getting enough sleep because he got up at 4 a.m. to train every day and that he was taking so many diuretics that it made his skin look fake. Worst of all, it left him depressed after the shoot was over. Efron added that he still likes to work out and push himself, but he prefers to have an extra 2 to 3 percent. <laughs> Extra two to pre- oh boy, uh, add ones in front of those for me, uh, and that's my preference. Or uh, zeros 12, behind 20. them. <laughs> <laughs> but but extra two to three percent body fat is this important? Do you care? I do think this is important. I think the fact that we have more than one time talked about uh, male body image on this podcast is a point of pride for me. Especially Zac Efron for so long was like th- this the male ideal, right? Of like, oh yeah, you should be nothing but muscles, no body fat. Like it really, it also to have that definition, there's such an absence of liquid that has to be happening in your body. I'm sure that's how doctors frame it. Well, that's what the diuretics do, you know, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they, but they literally can't drink water on the days they're doing shirtless, either filming or still photography. And it's not healthy. It's a stupid ideal. It's as damaging to men as it is to women to have the the reverse of that. So, yeah, I'll talk about th- I'll let you talk about this. Zach Efron. Good for you. Yeah. yeah. But I think talking about it now is the next step towards somebody being like, you know what? I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. I'm just not, and it's ridiculous. And if you want to CG me later to like give me four more abs, sure. But I'm not putting myself through this. And yeah, I, I mean, obviously, this is all very divorced from my day to day experience because I barely exercise at all, and like my diet is a nightmare. But you know, I, I think if anything else, this speaks to just the 
experience of doing any kind of artistic endeavor, whether it's like making a film or being in a Broadway show, for instance, where you have this period of your life where you are just focused on this thing and this thing only. And then at some point it ends. And it's like, even if it was awful, it's still, you still have to adjust to like that not being there anymore. Like, yeah, I'm no longer carrying this 40 pound rock on my back and I should be happy about that. But I kind of miss the rock because it was the thing that I got used to. You know, there's almost a Stockholm syndrome about all this. So I can see where that would be depressing, but I'm glad that he's also talking about just like how intensely and insanely intense this stuff has to get now and, and how it, it messes with you. It, it, yeah. it's, it's fascinating that people start to look at their bodies architecturally as opposed to functionally. Mm-hmm. And the, as somebody who's not attracted to jocks and like, give me a hairy tummy like any day <laughs> over uh, like somebody who's got a six pack. Um, it, it's boggling that it's become such a standard. But, you know, it started as a standard in the 50s when we started introducing beefcake into, uh, you know, mainstream culture as a currency for audience members to play with. And it's something that women have been subject to for a long time and men as well. But it feels like the the mainstreaming of queer culture, which used to be more interesting, like it's just one <laughs> more way that men need to break habits of oppressing others. And it's the Calvin Klein underwear ads oh, fault. Yeah. Well, yeah, this, this also circles back to this idea of like, you know the the whenever we talk about like the male gaze and 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 um, the, the gaze as opposed to lesbian, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and how it um, and like whenever we talk about how like these the beauty standards for women and then you have a whole bunch of dude bros who are like but but look look at the what what women like is like that's not that's not what no no that's y'all the the the, the call is coming from inside the house <laughs> but and. It, and it's so funny because all you have to do is just like listen to these meatheads and you would know this. I mean, just watch Pumping Iron. Uh, the, 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 the bodybuilding track to get to that body is so grueling because you do all the lifting, but then how you get that look where you're shredded is water loss and a bunch of sugar so your veins pop out. That's that's what it is. And every bodybuilder will tell you they're at their least healthy when they're quote unquote show ready. And then when you have strength and the guys who are like lifting the heavy stuff, they look like the folks that Brian is attracted to. You know, it is like it is the big belly, ripped chest, hairy, just straight. So like and, and this is something that just always ends up annoying me on all ends because I I lift, I'm real into fitness, real into lifting, but then also in nerd culture and when they had the Thor come out for God of War with the big belly they're like what how is this and then you had historians being like that's how he's described and then you had like meatheads being like that's how a really powerful man looks and it's just like it's this imaginary rule <laughs> like when you really think about it, it's this imaginary rule that is based on nothingness and no one is actually listening to the people who has to do it so I do like that one of my favorite um, like live active versions of this is when um, uh, is it uh, Robert uh, Michelini uh, Mac from uh, Always Sunny when he got ripped for a season mm. and he like broke down like this is this is this sucked this is how I did it I had a trainer every day this isn't sustainable and I think, you know, we're hopefully moving towards a a realistic view of fitness that isn't aesthetics. That is like, do what makes you feel good. And honestly, if you don't want to lift or run, you don't have to. We have such a finite amount of time on this j- crumbling earth that you should only be doing the things that make you happy as long as it doesn't fuck with anyone else's happiness. Like, that's just period, point blank. Here, here. I think that was the message of Wally. No, no. Um, Thrilled that the inner dick left to me, if we're assigning these to be reflecting our natural attributes, is the one about bankruptcy. Uh, Sin of World filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy last Wednesday, which sounds pretty bad. But bankruptcy also means an influx of cash, and the Regal Cinema's owner has now been granted $785 million by a U.S. bankruptcy court, which it can use to pay vendors and meet various financial obligations. 
money stuff. Cineworld stocks actually rose as a result of the announcement. If you think financial situations are stupid, you're not wrong. Is this important? Do you care? I mean, yes, in terms of the ongoing concern about the the future of the cinematic experience, you know, in the face of all the studios hunkering down on their uh, on their streaming platforms, thanks to the uh, overturning of the Paramount Accords. And you can Google that one because it's way too complicated to get into here. Uh, so, yeah, I think a lot of, uh, you know, your AMCs, your Cineworlds, your really huge companies, as well as your mom and pop indie theaters have had a rough couple of years and are looking at uh, a, a, a real sort of restructuring of the entire business as we know it. And ideally, we're going to come to a place where there is still going to be a room for smaller indie import films and not everything being, you know, the 4D IMAX 3D experience for, you know, giant event tentpole superhero movies that own the, 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 that is the only thing that studios want to make because it's the only thing that they're going to, you know, make their money back on. Uh, so, you know, part of that equation is the ongoing, you know, financial life of these theater chains. Um, and so, yeah, I, I hope that, that Cineworld and their, their U.S., you know, branch Regal, which is gigantic, um, can hold it together because we need them if we want to still go to the movies. Yeah. The, the, the Paramount Accords were actually a, a healthy thing. They invigorated yeah. um, independent chains. They... It took the value. It like gave more power to the creators and to yeah. original. Smaller visions, movies so could get into theaters that yeah. having to pay exorbitant fees to the studios that owned those theaters. Yeah. Yeah. So they they of course struck it down in 2020, seeing it as no longer relevant. It's biting everyone <laughs> in the dick now. Yeah. yeah. It's it's what it's what's funny is. Because the reason it happened is, like Drea said, uh, the Department of Justice Antitrust Division began a review of decrees that did not have expiration dates and was like, okay, well, let's look at these laws and, and, if, and see if they apply now. Something that we refuse to do with the Constitution, something that we refuse to do with like anything that is like, that is like affecting our like actual livelihoods and then something that actually was working, they're like, yeah, we're going to get rid of that. And, you know, I don't, I'm not, the, like I say with most things when it leans political, I'm not the brain behind it, but I'm sure that that wasn't an accident. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the political movie podcast, y'all take it from here. Uh, I don't know who y'all are, but I'm sure you are interesting and you go answer that question. Someone, someone's doing a weekly big short style yeah. <laughs> wrap up of these things that's not cribbing from Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah. And good luck to them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely go, 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 go fight that fight because um, that's not mine. Mine is uh, getting uh, Pacific Rim and everyone's uh, Blu ray collection that's mine uh but we're gonna take a break but when we come back it's story time we're talking about three thousand years of longing soylent the original food tech company makes nutritious and delicious nutrition products in convenient formats Ah, uh, yes. You know me. You heard earlier, as the resident meathead, I'm always way too tapped in on the cal calories and the macros. I'm getting inside my body, but I do it in a healthy way by not, uh, you know, taking a bunch of diuretics or waking up at 4 a.m. Uh, I have a child. Uh, that will never happen. She wakes me up at 5 a.m. Uh, <laughs> so I like, uh, you know, things like the Soylent Squared. It's small in size, but big on nutrition. Soylent Squared is a delicious and balanced 100-calorie complete nutrition bar that can be taken on the go, eaten as a snack between meals, or enjoyed as a sweet, nutritious mini treat. So it's great for any time of the day when you need to fit in and get that extra 100-cal. Go to Soylent.com slash MaxFilm and use promo code MaxFilm to get 20% off your first order. That's Soylent.com slash M-A-X-F-I-L-M and promo code MaxFilm for 20% off your first order. Welcome back to Maximum Film. I'm your host, if you want anyway, in the studio with me are... Drea Clark. Brian Fuller. Alonzo Duraldi. And today's film comes to us from the one and only George Miller of Mad Max fame. Common Sense Media describes it as an R-rated fairy tale full of the violence of history with plenty of nudity and sex. But how will we describe it? You're about to find out. So, Drea, would you mind giving us a brief summary of 3,000 Years of Longing? 
I was going to say, how are we going to describe it? Not as succinctly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so we are following Alethea, uh, played by Tilda Swinton, who is a uh, very single and content British scholar. Um, she is on a trip to Turkey and is in Istanbul. Um, speaking about her her area of specialty, which is narratology, everyone's favorite major, <laughs> um, she purchases an antique bottle there and then goes to clean it. And then as happens, it unleashes a djinn uh, or a, a genie, as other people know. And it's, uh, it begins as a room-sized version of Idris Elba. And honestly, I'd be happy with him at any size. So good to start there. And he, of course, uh, as you would expect, offers her three wishes. But she cannot be swayed that quickly because, again, she is an expert in narratology and knows if you wish, it is always a cautionary tale. And so to convince her, he starts telling her his stories of how he previously ended in the bottle and they're all related to love and find out more about her and her background. And they kind of trade off stories in this hotel room in cozy uh, robes that probably cost so much money. Um, those are the things I look at in a beautiful film like 3,000 Years of Longing. Um, yes, there we go. 3,000 Years of Longing. <laughs> my, my friend Kurt Holman, who's a film critic in Atlanta, called this movie uh, Good Luck to You, Leo Jin, which I thought was... <laughs> I, of course, thought about uh, uh, Julia Roberts and Tim uh, Robbins in uh, Pret-a-Porter, who spend the entire movie wearing white mm -hmm. hotel bathrooms mm -hmm. as well. But different movies, different movie. You know, I'm going to go ahead and ask Marissa's first question, which is, so why aren't all cinema gins as sexy as this one? And what took so long? I'm sorry. Some of us, the original animated Aladdin, it really did something. Yeah, yeah. You know? Don't sell that short. Well, and there was a very sexy gin on the first season of American Gods, which uh, uh, very true. Uh, uh, the Brian taxi driver, to us. the taxi driver, and the gin—that was like maybe the most scorching man-on-man -man action I have ever seen on American television. Um, and that was kind of honestly, because I'm I, I am not as literate as I should be. My first exposure to the idea that the word gin existed, because I'd always heard genie. Yeah, the, I mean, and that was, uh, you know, coming from Neil Gaiman's book, of course, and, you know, Neil has has made a very exciting career out of reinterpreting classic legends and retelling them. And that's sort of what American Gods was. So, uh, you know, I would say my first exposure was Genie. Like, I, I dream of genie. That was oh, sort of yeah. the idea uh, behind this kind of wish fulfillment uh, grantor. And, of course, you know, we elevated it with flaming ejaculate uh, <laughs> American gods. It's the 21st century. I mean. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure they were on prep. So, uh, like, that explains <laughs> the, the pair backing, um, as it were. But there is something about these... These stories and 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 they they set up all of the, the, the they kind of hit you over the head right off the bat with the Shahrazad Airlines and yes this is going to be a classic Arabian Nights sort of fable that drew me in and what was what was so interesting about the movie is that it is told so big and yet it is kind of slight. In, in its its emotional narrative. And I found that like a really interesting analysis of what love is. It is both big and small, and it is both insignificant and everything. So on those levels, like the choices were really interesting. Uh, but when I walked away from the theater, I was hoping to feel more than, than I had. And I really enjoyed the journey and loved the characters, loved the performances, loved the filmmaking. And, and I, and I, I was having a, a inner monologue about it for, for a couple of days afterwards, just wondering, like, why, why didn't I feel more? Why didn't I, go on this journey more uh fully than than what I had sitting in the in the theater. And maybe that was that was uh Tilda Swinton's character's kind of 
you know, emotional arm's length uh, analysis of everything about these stories that I, I really loved as a storyteller and, you know, somebody who's been in uh, writer's rooms for 20 years. It's, it's you know, all those conversations that felt like they were in a writer's room trying to beat out <laughs> the flaws of, of these tales. And that was really interesting uh, to me. I, I, I was much more intellectually stimulated than I was emotionally stimulated. Can I ask a question for you guys? Because you guys know I don't watch trailers, so I had no idea what to expect from this. And it's so cleanly set up at the beginning that Tilda Swinton's character is this highly respected woman, um, very comfortable in her own skin, comfortable with her intellect and how she's living her life. And she just she is introduced as being happily single and then goes on to talk about being very content with that. And one of the um, propositions that Jeannie has for her, because she's trying to come up with what are you, he's, he's suggesting what are, where it is something that your heart could desire. And she brings up her ex-husband and how she actually felt relief at the end of that and finding him with another woman. And so I had a whole thing I did not know that this was going to be a romance. I was watching the whole thing. I was enjoying the back and forth. I was enjoying the sort of one-upmanship of the stories. And obviously the beautiful visuals we're getting were taken into these and it's traveling through time. And like, it's the queen of Sheba. You're getting all this beauty and opulence. And so I, I was enjoying all of that, but I was like, oh yeah, let's go back to this cerebral conversation these two people are happening even though they are people who look like tilda swinton and idris elba whom i would happily lick either one of them so i still wasn't seeing like oh this is setting up a romance and then it 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 almost soured it for me because he also drops at one point like all women want the same thing. Ultimately, I, I, I'm going to know what I'm going to guess what you're going to want. And it's going to be what all women want. And I was like, huh, I bet it's not. I can't wait to see how they tweak that. And then what she does do is like, I want you to be in love with me. And I was like, well, I'm sitting in a theater, but I'd really like to upend a table right now. <laughs> how, how dare you? How, how dare you? If you're at the Alamo Draft House, you could. That's yeah. right. Yeah. I, yeah. I found that a little, uh, a little disappointing as well. I mean, this whole movie, I think, sort of fits in a category of like, auteurs who got the golden ticket you know like you you can look at certain filmmakers careers and they put out like their biggest hit their most critically acclaimed award-winning hit and then it's like what do they do now what are they gonna do and no one is when, when they just get to like go buck wild and cash in whatever real or imaginary chits they have and just make this thing that is like they're pure like the, this is the thing they've been dying to tell you and i'm like huh this okay george miller because you know he's his whole career has been about not playing it safe you know like he's never sort of been predictable whether it's you know a, a happy feet or babe pig in the city or you know beyond thunderdome whatever like that maybe beyond thunderdome is sort of the one like okay we have to do a part three now but almost nothing else that he's decided to do and he'll go away for long periods of time seemingly quite happy to to do so so i i was expecting just much more craze balls kind of filmmaking and and yeah it, there is this weird balance of like we're going to we're going to go into the sultan's seraglio and we're going to go to the queen of sheba but then we're going to keep coming back to this hotel room and the bathrobes um and, and I thought that was kind of interesting but but yeah it, it didn't I think I'm, I I kind of agree with both of you like it didn't I didn't it didn't take me to a transcendent emotional place and I it did feel like they were kind of kneecapping a lot of things about the Tilda Swinton character to get there in a way that didn't jibe with everything we'd heard about her for the first hour of the film. I was trying to reconcile that just afterwards because I was like, okay, her kind of out of the blue saying what I want is to be in love with you and you to be in love with me. And I, I was trying to frame it within the, like, is she coming out of her love for storytelling and basically saying the best kind of stories are romantic stories. So even though I may not feel romantically inclined, my love for the story wants me to be in love because mm. it's a more satisfying story as opposed or, to something or, that I authentically desire. 
Or is this the only safe thing I can wish for that isn't going to bring disaster down upon my head because right. I know yeah. full well that that's where these stories generally go? Yeah. I mean, for me, same thing. I went in blind not knowing what it was. The only thing, and it's funny hearing Drea's response after hearing the only thing I kind of knew of this movie going in was um, <laughs> I, I wish I could find the tweet so I can credit the person, um, but they were like, I don't know, and this is this is what they tweeted. They're like, I don't know how good George Miller's wife pussy is because he knows how to write women. And this was a woman who tweeted, and I was like, okay, I guess this is gonna be some mind blowing, like introspective look inside of the way a woman thinks. Uh, and I didn't get that. <laughs> like, like I like I didn't feel like I it was like enlightening in that way. But I will say a little tidbit about me after watching Splash at a young age. Um, I had a, a recurring dream uh, with a mermaid, and I made this mermaid my girlfriend. And she would return to me in my dreams, and we would pick up where we left off conversationally, emotionally. And I had a dream girlfriend who was a mermaid, and then she disappeared from my dreams forever, and I was sad about it. So with that tidbit of knowledge, you got to know that I was all in from the moment she mentioned her little imaginary friend in, in grade school who would come and comfort her. So I was attached extremely emotionally to this movie. I was like all in. And with that being said, I think I could have like saw credit rolls after her wish. Like with me after the wish and it kind of started to like get like a little sluggish There's for me. Like, well, there's such a pragmatic ending, like yeah, to go through all this fanciful yeah, world yeah, building yeah, yeah. to be like, oh, and then we figured out a shared custody sort of situation yeah, exactly. <laughs> for, our, uh, for yeah. our relationship. She, she had the racist neighbors and then like came over with this big black dude and that really, nothing really, I thought, I was like, oh, it's about to get spicy. She's coming over here with this big ass black dude. What they gonna say? And they're like, no, nah, we gonna eat this Turkish delight type beat. Um, and then like, then like the... I think it got like it, it got and I appreciate it, but I think it got so deep in the world building where it was like, OK, yes. But if Jin were to exist, why wouldn't we see the oh, because the electromagnetic waves are what kills them. So fairy tale died once we got too obsessed with technology. Technology is keeping us from whimsy. All right, let's go. Video kills let's, a radio yeah, star. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is this is the point in which I stand in front of the screen in the room, and I'm like, guys, I got it, I got it. The reason the Jin goes, and I'm swinging my yardstick around. For some reason, we have a yardstick in the Grand Crew room, and I swing it like a sword when I have a I'm great so pitch. I'm so glad to hear you're talking about an actual yardstick. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I swing an actual, we have a Home Depot yardstick for some reason, and when I have a good idea, for some reason, I swing it and everyone makes fun of me. Also, do we think the fact that she sees Jin on her own That's... before finding the bottle kind of cheapen the discovery of the well, bottle? Like it, it confused me because like, I was like, are, is she seeing fake is things? Is she, she real? Like I, it took me a minute to realize that the Jin was real and where we were going, and like, because because there was, I think you're right, Alonzo. When she starts started seeing the fake Jin, I was like, oh, this must be a figment of her imagination, and this is going to be her going through. Um, so yeah, it did confuse me a little bit. Well, I like I also just wondered if she was mentally ill. You know, if she is having yeah. those episodes, uh, you know, and this is the the visual manifestation of her mental illness. That's true. There's no outside confirmation that they happen. But she says that she's always seen aspects of storytelling manifested and mm. that she kind of exists outside of the narrative as well as inside the narrative in an interesting way. So I felt like that was something that was a coupon uh, but I'm not sure what the coupon was for. I walked away not being sure. In fact, the ending and the resolution of it at the end sort of felt like it could be explained away as mental illness. Uh, because he, like he comes and visits her periodically and it feels like it's all, it, it can all easily be explained away as her mental illness and it's a hard one because i don't think that's what george miller was saying is that it was that she was mentally ill i think he was saying that this happened but he wasn't giving us enough to to 
to cement that it actually existed beyond perhaps the racist neighbors seeing Idris Elba. But did they? Yes, they did. They we don't know. They just yeah. They, they were just shocked to see her with a plate of did food. Did he I mean, actually kick the soccer ball? We don't know. <laughs> I really, I actually, it's interesting. I like the idea of a dark ending like that more because, like I said, I felt sort of betrayed a little by him giving up on the happy contentment of a single woman and and having that be like you know what let me tell you enough love stories that you're gonna be like you know your life is actually shit you should want these lives and the but the the other element the stories that they were telling were fantastic and melodramatic and you know we're getting these insights to people in these bold and heartbreaking lives but also I kind of expected that stories would have either more metaphor or more direct shaping and reflection back into that hotel room. So Mm. it's not like, you know, there would have, I would have even been open to her falling in love with him because that would speak to one of my problems with love stories that I'm sure I've complained about before is when I don't get enough of why two people are drawn to each other beyond being the most attractive people in the movie. And this is nothing but people, two people conversing and sharing and potentially being vulnerable or revealing in that process. So if the stories they've been telling, if, if she had been given insights to him that unlocked something in her and vice versa, I would have bought more into that, as like where it was ending up, but I was like, he's kind know, of a I bystander think, in these stories as well. I was like, you're sort of a passive element in the love stories you're telling, and also the women you were involved with. I don't; those were not healthy. Like, who would want any of the relationships he described? Like, so that it was a it was a toss up because I loved the stories they were giving, and again, like George Miller is such he's a movie maker. He loves the whole medium and playing with every part of it. And so when you're in it and it's rich and you're like, oh, I'm here and it's all of this. And it's something I couldn't have, wouldn't have imagined on my own, but that I was really just trying to wedge what he was into doing into like a through line that I, I felt was kind of intangible. Well, no, I, I think also given that she's a narratologist, given the structure of this film, I thought, okay, well, surely then we're going to come away with some idea about like why stories matter, how stories impact humanity, what, what we choose to tell and not tell, what we create out of whole cloth and make real, and maybe even what's real that we turn into the imaginary. And even that, it didn't really land with me. It sort of felt like these are ideas that kind of are sprinkled throughout the film, but they don't they don't culminate in the way that the, the, this narrative ends. I wanted a little bit more gamesmanship between them, as mm. because uh, what what a great like they set up this wonderful power dynamic. <laughs> you know that she knows everything that there is about stories and how to twist them and how to turn them and how to invert them, and yet what he's communicating with her are very direct, simple stories that we've all heard before. They weren't necessarily new. And once again, this is this is you know a, a product of being in writers' rooms for for twenty years, where you're like turning a story over and over and over and over to see what more you can milk out of the the stone of a, a well worn tale. And it just felt like they they were satisfied with the presentation as it was, where the metaphor of each of those stories could have been applied back to. Tilda Swinton's character in some way, or she could have an analysis beyond the, you know, every, like the, these are all cautionary tales, but you know, there's, there's great power in the metaphor that felt lost in this iteration of, of a love of storytelling. It's like one of my favorite parts of storytelling is the metaphor. And this all felt kind of on the surface and very direct in terms of what it was saying mm-hmm. Because it was using, you know, tales that we've heard before. And, you know, if it's, you know, going back to Gilligan's Island, trying to entertain a headhunter, you know, by by sharing tales like we've seen this before. So it requires a certain level of elevation to make it fresh and new and, and particularly worthy of the cinema in which it is being told in this 
this iteration, which was fantastic. Like the filmmaking was fantastic, but uh, it was a lot of stuff that I've that I've, I've seen before, and and it had all of the tools to do more. It had all of the tools to really have a gamesmanship between. Uh, Tilda and Idris where they were playing off of each other but Idris tells you who he is at the beginning of the movie and he stays that way he doesn't really change so there are certain like kind of just friction elements between the characters that were absent where I was like oh that's nice they're getting along that's pleasant I'm sitting here <laughs> in a theater by myself on a Tuesday night uh, and everybody's getting along lovely uh, but it doesn't necessarily make great drama Fair enough. Vote, vote, vote. <laughs> Let's get the vote. So the way we rate things on this show is screen it being the highest, stream it being the middle point, and skip it being self-explanatory. So let's kick this thing off. I, I'm going to say ultimately it is a stream it, but with the caveat that if you can screen it, which is increasingly difficult because it came and left U.S. theaters very quickly, had not having made very little money, uh, you should see it on a big screen if you can because most of what this movie has going for it is George Miller's, you know, indisputable like artistry as a filmmaker, as a visual stylist and storyteller. Uh, I loved looking at this movie even when I was not entirely sure what the movie was telling me. Uh, you know, I love the there, there's a whole segment involving. You know the the Sultan's uh, uh, sable-lined room where he is meant to you know impregnate a woman and find a, a, a create an heir and and the the, volupt- the voluptuaries uh, that inhabit it and it's one of the I think one of the sexier presentations of a voluptuous woman in Western cinema that I've seen that is in no way intended to be like a joke or a you know whatever like it, they, 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 these are presented as being like sexy gorgeous women and that is why you know he is obsessed with them uh so yeah but but overall uh, i gotta say stream it um i'll follow that up i'm also a stream it. i'm glad you brought that up that was the other part that really stood out to me but i actually have really conflicted things because these women and and voluptuous is beautiful like these are these are my sisters this is like very large women, very naked, and they are beautifully styled. They have hair and the makeup, and it's wonderful. And I was braced the whole time for them to become the butt of the joke. And they almost aren't ever until the main one of them discovers the genie bottle by falling on her big butt and cracking a stone. And I would have loved them if it weren't for that beat. But in general, like, I I do think there's so much specialness to this. It just didn't fully gel for me. But I, again, please be making more movies like this than like, you know, the part eight of some tired franchise. Like, that's my vote. <laughs> Damn it. Brian? Uh, I, I, I really enjoyed seeing it on the big screen. I, I, I love the sound design. I love the visuals. I love the performances. Uh, I'm, I'm somewhere between screening and streaming. It depends on what your, your love of cinema is. If you enjoy the big screen experience, this will satisfy you, uh, visually, uh, if not narratively. Uh, so I'm a, Streaming? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Screaming, we'll either one. Yeah, yeah and, I'm, and I'm on that same, you know, uh, wavelength of Brian and Alonzo. I think, <clears throat> you know, uh, like, it's a very beautiful film. One I really enjoyed just kind of watching on that big screen and just seeing, like, all the pieces come together. And, like, for me, like I said, the story did resonate with me. And even with the, you know, little longer bits, it just really felt like a fun modern adult fairy tale where, like, I think it will tug the strings of the right person, uh, whether or not you uh, had an imaginary mermaid girlfriend. Uh, so because of that reason, it's definitely going to be a screen it for me. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to let you sit in that, sit in that, imagine what she looked like. Imagine, uh, with the experience I had as a child, waking up, going is excited to go to sleep, to meet her. Sometimes she wasn't there. Sometimes there was, there was a nightmare hiding behind that door. Uh, you know, it was a real, uh, real dice roll, uh, for if he's dreams at that age. <laughs> and while you think on that, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back after we hear from some other shows for maximum fun. 
elephants right-handed? What's the middlest size in the universe? What is the history of fan fiction? Let's find out together on our show, Let's Learn Everything, where we learn anything and everything interesting. My name's Caroline, and I studied biodiversity and conservation. My name's Tom, and I studied computer science and cognitive blah, 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 blah. Mm, Did you? <laughs> <laughs> and my name's Ella, and I studied stem cells and regenerative medicine. On our show, we do as much research as you would for a class, but we don't get in trouble for making each other laugh. And we get to say fuck. <laughs> Maybe not in the trailer. Subscribe to Let's Learn Everything every other Thursday on Maximum Fun. Are you ready to binge watch something old? The Greatest Generation is a podcast about Star Trek by a couple of hosts a little bit embarrassed to even have a Star Trek podcast. Hosted by me, Ben Harrison. And me, Adam Pranica. We get into the critical, the technical, the science fictional aspects of the show we love while roasting it and each other at the same time. We've completed an entire series about Star Trek The Next Generation and another one about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and we've just begun Star Trek Voyager. So now is a great time to start watching a new Star Trek series with us. So subscribe to The Greatest Generation on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts and become a friend of DeSoto today. Welcome back to Maximum Film. I'm your host, Evie Wadiway. In the studio with me are... Alonzo Duralde. Brian Fuller. Drea Clark. And today, we've got a message from our hotline email inbox edition. This one's from Kate, who writes, Hey, everyone. Love you so much. I recently moved to an island in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and it made me think of a question. What are your favorite island movies? Double points if they're not about being trapped on an island. I don't need those vibes. LOL. Y'all are amazing and I love listening to your episodes. I'm especially excited that we are slowly nearing the return of Alonzo's Christmas Minute. Keep it maximum. Like I said, if you don't specify your accent, I will choose one when reading your hotline email edition. The management would like to apologize. <laughs> oh, so uh, who, who's got an answer for Kate? I'll say her caveat of double points about it not being trapped on an island really brings into sharp focus. <laughs> All stories on islands are about people yeah. trapped yeah, on yeah. islands. No one want to be on an island for some reason. Like, you should want to be on an island, but I guess they aren't because it immediately takes out, as you know, Joe versus the volcano, which I will love to the day I die, and Swiss Army Man, another favorite of mine. What'd Just you come co- up with? Okay, so I do. I have two. One uh, is is a trapped on, but also the beginning they're not, which is Six Days, Seven Nights. Mm. Um, with Anne Hache that we just recently lost and Harrison Ford, who is still with us. And it's also based on a movie called On an Island with You with um, the swimmer. Esther, Esther Williams. Esther Williams. Yes, thank you. Whom I, and it's madness. That's a, a musical and fun, but ridiculous. Six Days, Seven Nights is just a tight rom-com. But honestly, what came to mind, and they, again, are sort of trapped. You guys, I loved Kong Skull Island. Ooh. I thought it was great. I loved that creatures in it. I loved the ensemble that splits up and you get the different attitudes and opinions and how they're navigating it. Um, It doesn't make island living look terrific. And I feel like that's what Kate really wanted from us. But, you know, six days, seven nights ends up happy. So maybe maybe I'm still fulfilling the brief in some way. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I was I'm definitely going to cheat and go with an easy island and say forbidden Sarah Marshall. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. you know uh-huh. because, you know, Hawaii, that's an island, uh, which would be wild if you were uh, in Hawaii. And that was just said it in a really fancy way. Uh, but I don't think we're, we're the Pacific on this side. Uh, you know, I'm starting to get my oceans down. Whatever. But that's my pick. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I. This is not a. I mean, I guess some some of the characters are stuck, but we're not going to count that. But uh, there's a lot of really good adaptations of uh, Shakespeare's The Tempest, 
Uh, the Peter Greenaway one is probably my favorite, and it's not streaming. The nice. movie called uh, Prospero's Books, uh, or maybe it is. I, you, who can tell? His stuff kind of comes and goes very quickly. But I'm a big fan of the Paul Mazursky version, which stars uh, uh, John Cassavetes as a sort of modern day Prospero. Uh, his his uh, estranged wife is played by his real life wife Jana Rollins, and their daughter is played by Molly Ringwald in her first big screen appearance. Oh, wow. I, I take it back. Prospero's books is on Canopy, so uh, that's a really trippy, uh, very Peter Greenaway. Let's talk about. Let's make a list of all the books in Prospero's library, kind of approach. Um, and then also there is the Derek Jarman Tempest, which is nutty and you know ends with a bunch of sailors singing stormy weather because of course why not uh and also you know very it's it's it is low budget but he is squeezing out every dime's worth of art direction he can and uh and you know making it hella gay which is why we love derek jarman uh so yeah any of those i think would be fun island movies uh but the first honestly it's not my favorite but the first one that popped in my head was i still know what you did last summer Ah. Um, (laughs) but that's you know uh, I go to things like Peter Pan. Oh, yeah. Sure. Uh, honestly, one of the movies that I watched over and over and over again as a child was the pirate movie uh, with Christy Ooh. McNichol. And uh, keep pumping, keep flowing. Uh, and all of the great songs from that film. Keep pumping. Never heard of that till recently, and the person who described it to me, I was like, "You're making all of this up," <laughs> and then sent me photo, like actual Christy McNichol. I was like, "How have I never heard of this film?" A movie that only exists because they knew the Pirates of Penzance was coming out soon, and it was a non-copyrighted um, uh, property, so they decided to do it, but with contemporary pop songs rather than musty old Gilbert and Sullivan. <laughs> Oof. Also, like Treasure Island, you know, the there have been some great Treasure yeah. Island adaptations, and including the Muppets, including the Muppets, and reading the book Treasure Island was one of my first homoerotic experiences because I was like, hmm, there's a, a young man that was around the age of the protagonist, surrounded by men, and I was just curious what all of the grown men looked like naked. A good curiosity, uh, yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Kate. I think we're going to rock, rock up on out of here on that note. And if you've got a question for a hotline writer, send us a voice memo. Maximumfilm at MaximumFun.org. And uh, Marissa, it's time to come in and let us know who won the Hall of Excellence. I don't know exactly what happened here. I swear I set all the Facebook settings just like I was supposed to, to not allow any outside poll but I'm no, it's okay because we have a winner from our original four mockumentary categories. So, just as a refresher, the four options uh, to promote one mockumentary to the Hall of Excellence as the best mockumentary from last week's episode about Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul were Waiting for Guffman, <laughs> Pop Star, Never Stop, Never Stopping, Drop Dead Gorgeous, and of course, The Other Side of the Wind. Now, I know that Alonzo is a little bit sad <laughs> about having gotten zero percent. You're of the all vote. dead to me, listeners. <laughs> I take this to the grave. I truly feel that it is because no one has seen the movie, and so allow me to, uh, on Alonzo's behalf, beseech all of you once again to watch The Other Side yes. of the Winds. It's on that obscure streaming platform called Netflix. Maybe some of you have it, or you know someone who does. <laughs> but. Without further ado, uh, the winning selection is Drop Dead Gorgeous. It, in some ways, it makes a lot of sense because this is Maximum Film. We have, for quite some time now, uh, had uh, an opening line from the trailer for Drop Dead Gorgeous as part of our theme song. Uh, very close. Actually, um, Popstar and Waiting for Guffman were really neck and neck. And um, But very, very close to that top position was a suggestion um, from Lisa of best in show. So Alonzo, in some ways that's a victory for you because uh, I believe you did I, uh, correct I, I, everyone. I did and... call it out that best in show is better than government. So yeah. Where's I'll, busy I'll, bee? I'll... Get in the busy bee. <laughs> I, I have an addendum to my island. I like, I just realized as you were talking, it occurred to me what my real answer is. Uh, somewhere in time. Ooh. Oh, wow. Mackinac Island uh, mm-hmm. in, in Michigan. So that would be my favorite island. 
That's the it's Christopher, Christopher Reeve's Reeve, right? favorite yes. movie that he did. Yeah. Oh. Well, and the two Great Lakes Midwesterners on this podcast are uh, big fans of any uh, <laughs> suggestion that we watch a movie set yes. on uh, the Upper Peninsula. So, um, anyway, thanks everybody for voting on Facebook for uh, the Hall of Excellence, and we'll see if I can just do it right next time. Uh, <laughs> I'll see you guys all on a future episode. Thanks, Marissa. Bye. Yeah, bye. Uh, so uh, now it's time for staff picks. It could be any movie at all. Who wants to start? So this was kind of a random thing that came up this week. Somebody that I know on Facebook, uh, who is a much more voracious reader than I am, every Saturday goes to the library and takes a picture of the books he has checked out, as well as DVDs and other media and stuff, and was reading, I guess, Katie Turr from MSNBC has a memoir out, and, uh, and he was talking about that, and I said, well, if you really want to know more about Katie Turr's family and upbringing, you should check out the documentary Whirlybird, uh, which is about the, um, the invention of the helicopter as a, a center point in local news coverage. Uh, but it's also about the couple that really kind of pioneered that who are Katie Turr's parents and uh, including Zoe Turr, who is Katie Turr's dad, who is a trans woman um, and was one of the two helicopter pilots that covered the OJ uh, Bronco chase when it happened in Los Angeles with another uh, L.A. station. They were sort of trading off back and forth. But anyway, it's a fascinating exploration of a family dynamic, but also about the changing face of TV journalism and a whole lot of other stuff. It's a film I find really compelling, and it's on Canopy. The movie is Whirlybird. Man, apologies to the Clarks for being so boring. (laughs) Look at you, Team Tur. Nice. Um, My film was inspired by the movie we watched today in... I love when storytelling itself is part of the story. And although uh, narratively and tonally it's different, this brought to mind Tim Burton's Big Fish, which Mm. I have a real soft spot for because you guys know I love an earnest piece of cinema with no cynicism in sight. Um, It also has some fantastical imagery and subject matter. um, And then a real heart-rending father-son tale, plus Albert Finney, love forever. Um, but yeah, there's, there's something really kind of magical and wild about it. So Tim Burton sort of, um, in, in the brightest, lightest version of himself, I'd say. Yeah. Big fish. You know, I'm a, I, I love Amelie. <gasps> That's my favorite movie. Sorry. It's, uh, speaking of, uh, an absence of cynicism, it is something that has moves and twists and turns and, and honestly, uh, 3000 years of longing could have picked up on a a little bit of the friction that that story constantly provided its, its protagonist to get through the narrative. Uh, so I'll just, I'll just say, if you haven't seen Amelie, go see it. I'm nobody's little weasel. Guess what, physical media fans? Amelie is not streaming anywhere right now. So <gasps> damn, Rude. go get your hands on a DVD or a Blu-ray. That was like the quintessential uh, "I'm into cinema" film. That, that was the first <laughs> one. Like you, at the turn of the you, millennium. Yeah, that's the first when, when when you popped off and was like, "I like Amelie." You knew that was a fan of cinema. <laughs> cinema. Oh my gosh, I'm I'm uh, I'm frying down here, and so is my brain. Um, <laughs> Hey, can I come on real quick and just say I uh, emailed Missing Movies. We had a news story a while back about about the Missing Movies organization. And um, Mississippi Masala was a missing movie for a while that they were really touting. Um, You can email Missing Movies when you discover a a movie like this that's not available on streaming everywhere and let them know. Um, And it's an organization that's trying to work to prevent that kind of thing. So they can add it to their list of things they're aware of. And I actually did that for Amelie a while back because I was so shocked to find that it wasn't streaming anywhere. So anyway, well, I'm a nerd. Thanks for fighting the good fight, Marissa. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, uh, and, and mine is going to be, I feel like for a while I've had, you know, staff picks that have been like, all right, not as upsetting, <laughs> not as alarming, but we watched a movie about Jin, got me thinking about genies. We already had a Robin Williams reference. And I got to say, 
the live action of Aladdin was not that bad. And that's my pick. I want you to see Will Smith. I think he does just... <laughs> I don't know if Alonzo, Alonzo's making a face. I don't think he agrees at all. Uh, but I think, you know, Will Smith did the right amount of homages to Robin Williams. Had the, he was, he was, it was great. It was funny. It was pre-slap. So, you know, we, we weren't as divided on him. Uh and uh, I like the like implementation of like the Bollywood elements. So yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm gonna say, peep that. Give it a shot. Tell me if you agree or disagree. I'm still recovering from Pinocchio, so I'm very touchy right now about Disney uh, remakes. <laughs> I, I don't know who did this, but I said Pinocchio, and someone was like, "You don't pronounce it like that in Italian." <laughs> so now I would say Pinocchio. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Literally Italian, all like two. Yeah, I I wish I knew. uh, Like you know, Chicolina. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) but somebody yelled at me, uh, and I I was like, "All right, well then, I'm saying Pinocchio." Believe me, this Zemeckis (laughs) movie is strictly Pinocchio. If you know what I mean. I do. I really do. Oh, okay. Well, thank you so much to Brian for joining us. You. it was great. Your voice was amazing. Like, like you're, you're, you're like met- metaphorically, but also physically and actually. Uh, but, uh, you know, thanks for another uh, hanging with us, holding it down. Where can people find you and see what you got going on? Uh, I'm at Brian Fullergram on Instagram and Brian Fuller on Twitter. And we've got Queer for Fear coming up uh, September 30th on Shutter and AMC, which features Alonzo Duraldi prominently throughout all four episodes. But watch it anyway. Yeah, we call, it, we call him Mitts with all of the gesticulation. That's, that's true. Very handsy. Uh, that's, that's the next thing coming up and some exciting things next year. Yay. Sweet. Thank you so much, Ray and Alonzo, for another wonderful show. And also, thank you, the listener. If you have a comment or suggestion about this week's show, tweet at us at Maximum underscore film. Our Facebook group can be found at www.facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Maximum Film or send us an email at Maximum Film at Maximum Our super producer is Marissa Flaxbart. Our senior producer is the wonderful Laura Swisher. And this is a production of Maximum Fun. Bye-bye. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture Artist owned Audience supported